So we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians and we've made it to the final chapter. We started the series back in May last year and we've made it. We've come to the end. And if you've been through this whole series, then maybe just well done. Give yourself a pat on the back at an appropriate time. Uh, we've done it. We've made it. And we're on, in our Bibles, we're page 1157. And um, if the guys that gave them out with the lovely knitwear, if you've got those Bibles, it's 1157. They should appear on the screen as well. But throughout this whole book, Paul has been correcting the church on certain issues. And he's been reminding the church to remember their first love of Christ. And as he closes this book, Paul uses this last chapter just to pour out his heart one last time to the church. We see that in this, in this chapter where he says that I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And at the time, that would have been very rare for the author of the letter to write these parts himself. He usually would have had a scribe, but he wants to show the church how much they mean to him, that it's coming from himself and not anyone else. And this part of the letter is very personal as the word you or yours in the NIV translation, is used about 20 times. As he's appealing to them personally, Paul is trying to reiterate to the Corinthian church to remind them um, of a number of things. And particularly in this passage, I think he's trying to remind them of what their legacy is as a church and what their legacy should be. And he's really keen for the church to be united in Christ, not to be divided on the issues that have been discussed in the previous chapters but be an example to the rest of the world and how a church should be. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what is my legacy? What is the legacy of the Corinthian church here? And um, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, actually, and maybe some of you have as well, of what is my legacy? What am I going to be remembered for? Uh, I was at a funeral in the last year uh, where we came together to celebrate the life of this amazing man of Christ uh, who was influential in bringing uh, the Alpha Course up into Scotland for bringing a number of charities up into Aberdeen um, just to further God's kingdom. He was also an incredible businessman. And um, whoever spoke, whether that was friends from church, family, or people that he did business with, they always said he did incredible business but was always a man of integrity. And whatever he did, he was always a man that his yes was yes and his no was no. And that really struck me and challenged me that is that what I want to be remembered for as a man of integrity. And also we've, uh, as, as a British people, we've, we've, we've lost some loved gems of the British Empire recently. David Bowie, Alan Rickman. Bowie was known as an innovator of music and fashion. He was uh, constantly reinventing himself. And Alan Rickman, he was a master of his craft, transformed himself into many loved characters. For many, he might be known as the Sheriff of Nottingham. For my wife, he's always going to be known as Severus Snape from Harry Potter. For me, though, he will always be Hans Gruber from Die Hard. And for a couple of minutes, Bill Clay, if anyone gets that reference. And also, we learned that Terry Wogan passed away this morning as well, which is a bit of a breaking news. He passed away. And he was obviously known as kind of uh, one of the nation's favorite um, radio presenters, an incredibly charming man. But is that what we want to be remembered for, for being a man or woman of integrity, an innovator, a pioneer, a master of our craft? Or maybe for some of us, 
um, the kind of word legacy, we struggle under the weight of that, of someone who's maybe gone before us, maybe a parent or a grandparent. We're always kind of in their shadow. And I went to the cinema recently and I saw Creed, which is the new Rocky film. And it follows the story of this guy, this young guy called Donnie Johnson, who is trying to, I suppose, make his name as a boxer, but is overwhelmed by the fact that the name of his father, Apollo Creed, kind of follows him everywhere. And if you know the Rocky franchise, you know that Apollo Creed was one of the greatest boxers ever. And he's trying to make his own name as a boxer, but still people are just referring back to his father. And throughout the film, he's trying to be his own man and not just his father's son. And for many of us, we might feel like that. We're trying to be our own person and not who has gone before us. But whatever legacy looks like or sounds like to you, I feel that Paul gives the Corinthian church three values to be remembered for and one challenge. And we can find this in 1 Corinthians 16, which we'll now read. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, See to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything in love. Amen. So, here we see there's three characteristics that Paul wants the church to be reminded of, of what their legacy is. And the first one is generosity. In the first four verses of this chapter, we see Paul's heart at this time is for the mother church in Jerusalem. And he is burdened for that church as they were facing severe famine. And he addresses the Corinthian church in a way that he's appealed to other churches. as He says he appealed to the Galatian church and to a number of other churches to help Jerusalem in this crisis. And the way he says that they should do this is by being deliberately and routinely generous. He tells the church to set aside money on the first day of every week, that it should be each one of you that gives, and in keeping with your income. And we also see that that's a kind of practice throughout the Bible, as in Deuteronomy 16, it said that we should give in proportion with our income. 
And Paul felt very strongly that the Corinthian church should help that church in Jerusalem in this way. He felt that giving and being generous was for everyone. It was regular and deliberate. It was prayed over and it was thought over. And you will know that um, we at City Church, we, we take generosity really seriously and being good stewards of our money. And throughout the last year with Spreading Life Phase 2, we, many of us have given sacrificially. Maybe we've gone without things for the sake of God's kingdom. Maybe that's a second car or a Sky subscription, a holiday or whatever. We've gone without that. And Paul wants to honour that and wants to show us that that's a great example of generosity. And I don't want to talk about too much about that at the moment because we've talked about that a lot recently. But what strikes me about this type of generosity that is displayed here is that it's personalised to the need of the church. When I think about money these days, it's so easy to transfer money between accounts. I can do it on my phone. I can do it by bank transfer. I can do it by credit card, by check. I can even do that thing, that contactless payment. Has anyone tried that? It is freaky. I don't like it. It's like, oh, money's gone and I haven't even put my pin in. That's weird. But it's only like 20 or 30 quid, so it's okay. I found that that made me feel a bit better about it rather than feeling like, oh, I've just spent 100 quid without realizing. But it's so easy to transfer money. There's so like, it's a depersonalization of money that we can just give that away. Even if all those things didn't work, we could still send money by post. But the church in Corinth, they would have had to send someone individually to go to Jerusalem to give this offering. And when they got to Jerusalem, they would have seen with their own eyes the poverty that was there, the famine that was there. They'd have seen that depravity and they would have given to that cause. They'd have seen the direct help that that would have made. And that would have been incredibly moving for those delivering the money. It have had a profound effect that they would have given and they would have seen that need being met. Paul is calling the church to be continually generous and to personalize that giving to those who need it most. Not just write a check or give without thinking. Experience what those people are facing and then be generous in the faith of these issues. And for some of us, that means we need to get alongside people who are struggling financially to learn about what they're they're struggling with and then give sacrificially in that way. And what Jill and I, what we've tried to do in our first year of marriage is that we've tried to to set out a budget each month and obviously some of that accounts for uh, our mortgage, Accounts for our gas and electric because I like food. It accounts quite a lot for our food bill. Um, But also, we've tried to put into our monthly budget what we call a blessing fund. Um, Now, we've not always achieved this every month, but what we try to do is maybe um, a sum of money that we've agreed that every month we just want to help someone uh, and give that away. Whether that is someone we know who's struggling with finances or maybe it's paying for someone shopping in the queue at the supermarket Or maybe it's just um, personalizing that generosity, giving to someone who doesn't have. Or maybe someone who just giving generously for for a reason that maybe they want to celebrate something. We can give that way. But giving unexpectedly to people and personalizing that. I think that this generosity here would have been so astounding to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem would have been where um, God's chosen people, the Jews, would have been. They would have 
felt that they were um, the chosen ones. And then what they see is this money coming in from the Gentiles, those who, have, I suppose, their groundwork has laid uh, for them to come to Christ. Are then, they're then blessing back. How amazing that would have felt. They would have seen this giving not only as generous, but also as a united front. And they've been looking from that from far and wide. Now, I've said this a number of times. I love my films. Uh, I'm also, I also get quite emotional at films, I have to say. I'm, I'm a bit of a crier when it comes to films. The last thing I watched, actually, this week, it's a little bit of a confession, was the last One Direction video, and I cried at that. Uh, when they were all like leaving and everything. It was, it was really sad. I'll get prayer at the end, don't worry. But one... one if you haven't cried, you haven't watched it, I'll tell you that. One film recently that I cried at quite a lot was this film called Pride. Has anyone seen the film called Pride? It was made a couple of years ago. Incredible film, actually. Uh, it was about this group of uh, lesbian and gay activists. And they, uh, in the 80s, raised money for those affected by the British miners' strike in 1984. And um, the, the Union of Miners were really reluctant to take any money. They phoned up and they got nothing back. So they decided that they were going to go to, for a wee road trip to this Welsh mining village and to give this money, to give this collection that they'd made. And uh, when they arrived, it was a bit of a frosty reception. People were like, I don't know if we want to be associated with these people. Um, there was all these stigmas around. But one miner, die, very Welsh name, die, die. Uh, he, he, he accepts this money and he goes to a club where they're having like a party after the celebration of giving this money. And he thanks the activists. And he says these words. And I'd love to do it in a Welsh accent, but I don't want to offend anyone. So I'm just going to put it in my normal accent. But he says this. He says, when you are in a battle with an enemy that is so much bigger, so much stronger than you, to find out you had a friend you never knew existed. Well, that's the best feeling in the world. And that's how I think the church in Jerusalem would have felt when they received this gift. This friend that they maybe didn't realize existed, that they didn't realize what they were like, but that they could use that generous generosity to, to feed themselves and put that into their everyday lives. They would have been overwhelmed by that. And when we are deliberately generous to others, we can show people the friendship they never knew they had and be such a blessing to them and in turn show them God's love through our generosity. So our legacy is that we should be a generous church. Our legacy is also that we should be a church of hospitality. Paul wants the church to be remembered for being generous, but also for being inclusive and hospitable to others. He mentions a number of people in this passage. He mentions Timothy. He mentions the work of Apollos, the household of Stephanus, and Priscilla and Aquila. But particularly here, I want to focus on Timothy. Now, Timothy was a young man at this point who had a real call from God on his heart, but he wasn't massively sure of himself. We see that in Paul's writing uh, to the letters of Timothy, where he tells him to be bold and courageous and to believe in himself and believe that what God has put in him is the right thing. But Timothy, at this point, would have probably felt like he was coming to an alien land, that he was the foreigner. He was unsure whether he'd be accepted. Many would have been older than him and would have potentially felt wiser and superior. He'd also maybe heard about the problems the Corinthian church had had where they had a habit for making themselves look better than others or for lording their knowledge over others. 
And Timothy could have potentially felt very intimidated coming to that church, sharing the gospel and exercising leadership over them. He might have thought, they're not going to take me seriously. They're not going to listen to me. Paul is urging here that the legacy should include being inclusive to all that come to Corinth. Paul says to the church that Timothy should have nothing to fear. He shouldn't be afraid of coming, but should be welcomed in. That no one should treat him with contempt. That no one should treat him that he's, he's not worth it. And he concludes by saying that he wants the church to send Timothy on his way in peace so that he may return to me. He's urging the church to show full hospitality to Timothy, to make him feel at home, not nervous or intimidated. And we see a true example of hospitality later in the passage where uh, we see the household of Stephanus is lifted up as an example of hospitality. They were new converts to Christ. But Paul highlights them by saying that they have refreshed his soul. I don't know about you, but when I have experienced true hospitality, that refreshes my soul. That home-cooked meal, that welcome, sitting on a sofa, whatever it looks like, that always refreshes my soul when I feel that hospitality. And in a recent tweet, uh, Nicky Gumbel said this about the church. He said, the church is not an organization you join, but a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you find healing. That is hospitality to me. And here at City Church, I think we do hospitality really well. And there's two little ways um, that we do that to an extent already. And one is the moment that some of us love, some of us hate. And we've had it just before I spoke called the turny roundy bit. And some of us think, some of us think that's probably really, really cheesy and a bit weird. But um, it's so important to our church family life that we have that intention that every single visitor has that opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with someone in church and shows them that we care and that we love them. I know sometimes I can be guilty of maybe choosing to go for a toilet break at that point or when I sometimes was in GP I, I went for a break of fresh air when I didn't smoke at all I just wanted to kind of escape basically um, or I might speak to someone I already know I might speak to my spouse but please don't. Please speak to that person that you don't know. Take that little step of hospitality. It can make all the difference. And I know that in turny roundy bits, I've spoken to people that have stayed in this church because someone spoke to them in that moment. It's a tiny little thing, but it makes a big difference. And Jill and I, we love the turny roundy bit so much that we had the turny roundy bit in our wedding. So in our wedding ceremony, we want everyone to feel welcomed. And Jill had a big family, and they didn't know all our friends. So we thought, why don't we do the turning around event? Everyone can feel like family. And our families loved it so much that the ceremony of the church was the highlight, which um, is amazing. And they said to us that if church was like that every week, we would go. To which we replied, our church is like that every week. And they thought, hmm, okay. We need to be hospitable. So many times, I guess, churches can feel like um, that situation in the Casting Crown song, If We Are the Body. And I was listening to that song for the first time in years this week. And it just cut to the core of me when it said, It's crowded in worship today as she slips in, trying to fade into the faces. The girls' teasing laughter is carrying farther than they know. Or the second verse, where a traveler is far away from home, 
He sheds his coat, sinks into the back row. The weight of their judgmental glasses, glances sorry, tells him that his chances are better out on the road. And that breaks my heart that that is a view of church for some people. And maybe the Corinthian church were a bit like this. As in verse 12, Paul says that Apollos was unwilling to come to you because and before Paul spoke to him. And it's maybe Apollos is a bit like, oh, I don't want to go there. It's a tough crowd. The turny roundy bit is so important in order for our legacy to be a church of hospitality to all. And the other thing that we do really well is, is what we've mentioned this morning is table for six. Now, if you want to be involved in table for six, the deadline is tonight, so sign up soon for the next extravaganza. And um, when it's really simple. that When you sign up, either with your uh, friend or your spouse or on your own, you are then paired up with four or five other people in the same site, and you have a meal together. And it's not like come dine with me where you're like judging and rating people out of 10 or you're kind of snooping around. It's nothing like that. But it's like that you all come together. Sometimes people all cook and they bring something together. Sometimes one person who has a real gift of hospitality does all the cooking. Sometimes people go out for a meal. But the whole point is to create community and to be a community, not a crowd. And build and grow church unity through that. And I know that I made friends through Table for Six, that I maybe wouldn't have made on a Sunday. But because I've had that chance to have a meal with them, um, those friendships have grown. And the church has become more welcoming for newcomers and has helped people stay and friendships build and grow and unity is increased. So our legacy, Paul is saying, it should be generous, it should be hospitable. And most importantly, our legacy should be a legacy of love. Paul, in this passage, he You can feel he's building to something. And um, verses 13 and 14, which are just amazing, I love. He just builds every time. He's like, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. And I can almost feel like him as 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 a general in an army, like rallying the troops. And he's saying these things, and every time he's getting louder and louder, he's like, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Oh, yeah. Be courageous. Yes, Paul. Be strong. And they're like, yes. He's like, do everything in love. And they're like, oh, okay. That's a little bit different. Bit of a curveball there. But it's showing how important that love is as part of our faith. That everything should be about love. I love it that he kind of flips that round. That you think, oh, geeing ourselves up and then doing everything in love. Love is at the center of our faith. It's the center of everything that we do. We can be generous. We can be hospitable. And for a while, people will be like, oh, yeah, that's a really nice church. That's changed my view on church. If we don't have love, it will be worth nothing. Time and again, Paul has shown the church in Corinth that what they need is the love of Christ above all. That amazing chapter, chapter 13, Paul shows this when he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And 
We need love in our legacy in order to be remembered for a church that believes and lives out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need that above all else. Over the last couple of years, Jill and I have been at the stage where we've been to lots of weddings. And, and with that, as a man, I've been invited to lots of stag do's. And um, usually, if you've never been to a stag do, usually there's an activity in the day of what you do. Usually a bit of fun. Uh, maybe it makes the stag feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, an activity at mine, for example, was that we did karaoke, uh, which didn't make me feel uncomfortable at all. I loved it. It was so much fun. But one... One activity at Stag Do I was recently was, was bubble football. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever done bubble football before. Um, it's very, very simple. Basically, you play football, but the catch is, is that you are in, encased in this kind of bubble of, um, like kind of bubble wrap, basically. And it's, it's a really weird sensation because you kind of, um, you kind of run a bit like this to start with because you've got this extra weight on top of you. And, um, but the real fun about it is that um, it's not really about the football, but you just like smack into each other and you fall to the ground and then you get back up and you just smack into each other again. And it's just basically a kind of way of getting male aggression out there um, for an hour or so in a safe and controlled environment, uh, <laughs> which is quite fun. <laughs> but for me, I felt this was, in, in, in a way, and go with me, is a, is a picture of how we should love people in the sense of that we should be encased in that bubble of love that when we get up the first thing that we do is that we put on that bubble of love around us we spend time with God we listen to him in prayer we read his word and then we put on this bubble of love for our everyday life and that when we meet people in our everyday life we can't help but bump into them and show God's love probably don't smack them on the floor that's not the best thing to do but we just bump into them we're contagious with our love of God that people see that difference in us. That should be our legacy. That we should have a legacy of generosity, a legacy of hospitality, and a legacy of love. And Paul is, is asking us to aim for this in this passage, but I also feel there's a challenge for us in Paul's final chapter of this letter. And the challenge is that we need to finish well and in verse 13, Paul tells the church, he says, stand firm. And he uses that language often near the end of his letters. He says uh, to 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul tells the church to stand firm and hold fast the teachings we passed on to you. In Philippians 4, he says, stand firm in the Lord this way. And in Ephesians 6, he says, stand firm in the full armor of God. And when I see those words by Paul of standing firm, how I read that for us as a site, for City Church South, is for us to finish well in this chapter of our story. And as we've said, it's our birthday today. We're three. It's amazing. We've got past the terrible twos. Um, but for many of us, if not all of us, we're, we're really aware that this year there's maybe a burden behind us that uh, by the end of the year, another site will come out of this one. And some of us may be really excited about that, about that new adventure. Some of us, we may be really nervous about that. You maybe want to be part of the new site, or you maybe just think, I really hope my friends are in the same site as me. But whatever you're feeling about that, I believe that Paul is wanting us to finish well with the stage that we are currently at. 
So Jill and I, um, a little bit about our story. We we kind of each other for maybe four or five years um, before we really knew each other. And and when we first met each other, we were both like, oh, they're a bit, other one's a bit weird, eh? Don't really like them. Not really sure about them. And sometimes people would come up to us and be like, oh, do you, have you ever noticed Jill over there? It might be a good wife material. Uh, and you'd be like, nah. <laughs> and then people might be like. Oh, it's Jill. It's like, have you ever noticed that Ali, he's, he's all right, isn't he? And she's like, nah. But, so yeah, this is a really good start to the story. Eh? Um, but we went on a, we did a gap year at church called DNA. And uh, for some of you that may know that, uh, where it's basically, it's quite an intense year where, um, I suppose you grow in all things in the church. You're, you're given uh, responsibilities in all the ministries of the church. And also it's quite a, a tough year of character building, of breaking down your character, finding out who you really are, and building you back up in Christ. Uh, I don't know if I'm selling it that well there, but never mind. Um, but one of the things, at the start of DNA, you do this kind of like contract thing. And one of the sections in the contract is called Section 4. Or as I like to call it, section four. Because that reason, that contract, that section is to say that if you haven't, if you're not in a relationship at the start of this year, you can't be in a relationship until you finish DNA. And um, the kind of reason being was because uh, nothing else would distract you on your walk with God. And at the start of the year, for me and Jill, that was fine. I was like, oh yeah, a bit weird, don't really know. Um, but when we went through that year, we started to grow feelings for each other, to grow feelings um, and seeing each other uh, kind of grow in God. It just became really aware that I was really attracted to Jill. And um, but I knew I, I wanted to honor that commitment that I had on DNA. And um, I was wrestling with that over the summer. It finished in October, so it was like the final stretch. And um, I knew I had these feelings. Um, and I went to Clan to help out on the kids' work. Uh, Jill was organizing Imagine, so she wasn't there. So it was just kind of me helping out this kids' work. And um, I remember the last day I spoke to the leader of the of the Clan kids' work. And we were just chatting, not anything really about, but it's just been a really significant week. And then I said, like, you know, anything, anything to share before I leave, any kind of words of advice. And um, he looked at me dead in the eye, and he said... Finish well. And I was struck, incredibly struck. I thought, you know, any advice on kids' work, any advice on on anything particular? And all he said was, finish well. And to be honest, for us, for me and Jill, we didn't particularly finish well because we kind of started our relationship before the end of DNA. And those words, I will always remember that I didn't finish that stage of my life well. But God has redeemed that. He's, he's forgiven us. And I feel that for every other step of our lives now, I'm always going to remember to finish well. And whatever situation you are in, I feel Paul is urging us to finish well. You know, there's that phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side. And um, there's a few kind of, um, kind of um, counter arguments to that that I found this morning. Um, it says, sometimes people say that if the grass is always greener, then water your own lawn. Make sure um, that you are looking better and that's your own grass, then your own grass will be greener. Or some, I found this on exboyfriend.com, so bear with me. Some, I know, if you look up, if the grass is always greener on the other side, that's the first thing that comes up. And one person said, they were a bit snippy, they were like, if the grass is always greener on the other side, then the other side has been used by manure. 
It's been fertilized by manure. It's like, oof, oof, someone has issues there. So you might be moving to a new job. I want to encourage you to finish your... (laughs) Got a bit carried away there, sorry. You might be going to a new job. Finish your old job well. You might be feeling like you want to move to the new site and south. Finish what you're doing here well. You might be moving to a new house, a new place. Finish where you are at the moment well. You might be struggling with a personal relationship. I just urge you to finish well. But let me be clear on that one. If you're married, I'm not in any way saying to finish your marriage. But I'm saying that maybe you need to... No, bear with me. Maybe you need to draw a line under the sand of how your marriage is currently. And if you are struggling, then speak to someone. We have excellent marriage counsellors in this church. And I just really want to urge you, don't hear what I'm not saying. But for sometimes it might be that you've been in a marriage and you've been bickering for years. And maybe it's God is saying to finish well. Draw that line under the sand. Start again in your marriage, in a marriage of love and acceptance and unity. That is the way of finishing that part of your relationship well. But if any of those situations relate to you, if anything, then we would love to pray for you. So as we finish 1 Corinthians, I think we've learned a lot about the early church, about the mistakes made, also about what to pursue. So as we go into this new chapter of our life in City Church South, let's be known for being a church of generosity, of hospitality, of life, and wherever we are at in our life, let's finish that stage well. So often we can think it's going to be better when we move on to the next thing. I feel God is really telling us to finish that stage wherever we are now well. Why don't we stand?